Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Changeup, the brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best places they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any of your devices. That's D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Uh, Before we get started, let me direct you to some of our baseball coverage at TheRinger.com. Ben wrote about uh, the essential baseball book, Lords of the Realm, and I talked to Tyler Glasnow of the Tampa Bay Rays about how he went from almost dropping out of the Pirates bullpen to becoming an AL Cy Young contender. So please uh, go check out that and all of our NBA playoffs and Game of Thrones content and so forth and so on. So with all that out of the way, let's get started with Zach Cram. All right, so our first segment today is just going to be, we're going to go around the league and talk about uh, things that that bring us joy and pain. We're going to do, it's like going to be like world news tonight. So uh, here to be my Peter Jennings is Zach Cram. Zach. I don't understand that reference, and I feel bad about that. Peter Jennings was like the guy. He was, I was, we were a Peter Jennings family, not a Tom Brokaw family, not a uh, Dan Rather family. All right, so back before you were born, there was news on television. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. Uh, And Peter Jennings was one of the people who looked in the camera and read the news to you. So this is what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to read the news. So the first headline is Detroit, Michigan. The Los Angeles Angels are going to activate Shohei Otani. He's back. Hallelujah. Obviously, he's not pitching. He's still recovering from Tommy John surgery, but he has finally recovered enough to hold a bat in his hands. What are your thoughts on Shohei Otani? My thoughts on Shohei Otani are, I believe Ben wrote about this in our like preseason staff post about the things we were most excited for in the 2019 season. And it's really easy with so many good young players, so many prospects coming up to get excited about new players. We're going to have a segment just after this about Chris Paddock. But I don't think we can forget just how extraordinary Shohei Otani's rookie season was. And while he won't be a two-way player this year, like as half of himself as just a hitter. I think he's just as exciting as any other player in the majors because even though he's not pitching, you still look at everything he does and think, wow, and that guy can you know throw 100 miles an hour and spin a wicked breaking ball. And it's not like he is any worse as a hitter. He had a 150 OPS plus last year. He had a 2010 season with home runs and stolen bases. I'm just so excited to see him back on the field and doing amazing baseball things. Yeah, that was the big surprise for me last year. And like, so I don't I don't think it's controversial to say Otani's the most interesting uh, person in Major League Baseball. But even so, I think Ben is like in the very far right end of the tail of uh, if you were going to graph how interested baseball people are in Otani. Uh, not to talk shit on him while he's not here, but when effectively wild, they did a, a draft of the most interesting team in, in in baseball or the most fun team. And Ben picked the Angels first which is a ludicrous opinion, even if the, the Angels do have Otani and Mike Trout. Um, anyway, what, what surprised me the most about Otani last year was just how, not just how good he is as a hitter, but how interesting. Like, I've gotten really into guys with 
sort of loose, uh, relaxed arms with the swing. So this is, if you want examples, Ronald Acuna is one of these guys. Uh, Bryce Harper is one of these guys. And Otani like sort of wraps around and the whole thing unfurls. And it's, I mean, that's, you can see where the power comes from. Just the, the leverage that you generate from that kind of swing. Um, yeah, he's, he's tons of fun and, uh, we have definitely missed him. And like, I probably watched the angels more than any other team last year. Last week, we talked about our all MLB.tv team of the first month of the season. The angels weren't even really a consideration for me, even though they have trout and and Dalton Simmons, but with Otani out with Justin Upton out, it's been a lot of like you know, Justin Bohr and Brian Goodwin and those players are fine, but they don't, you know, excite me like Otani does. And I'm sure I will be watching a lot more angels from here going forward. It is weird, like because Trout, Otani, Simmons, those are what, like three of the five most fun players in baseball and uh, the rest of the team. I don't know who the fourth most interesting player on the angels is. Last year probably would have been Garrett Richards, but he's gone now. I mean, I'm personally interested in like David Fletcher, but not quite on the same level. That as is Shohei a very Otani. weird thing. Why? Why do you find David Fletcher interesting? He fits the kind of player type I like, where he is a good defender and gets on base. And that's like when I first started understanding how sabermetrics worked. That was the kind of player I gravitated toward, like an undersized player who does a lot of little things well. But you know, Shohei Otani does the big things well too. Is so who would have would it have been? It would have been like a like a Brian Roberts type. Is this my completely off base? Yeah, with that? you know, like someone who hits thirty doubles a season and you yeah. don't recognize them because they don't have the highest home run totals, like that sort of thing. Which I wouldn't say is disappearing by any stretch, but now that everyone can seemingly hit fifteen or twenty home runs with a loose ball, it's kind of interesting to me at least to see those other player types still thriving. Well, one guy who, oh, sorry, Dateline San Diego, da, 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 uh, Chris Paddock and Jacob deGrom, like, I was, this is, this was the, the old-timey pitcher, pitcher's duel, uh, this was about as phenomenal a, uh, a one-on-one, like, you know, two guys going deep into the games, just completely dominating, uh, this was a blast, you were slacking about this game last night. So, I think, at this point, we've probably mentioned Chris Paddock on this podcast, if not every week since the season started. Yeah. At, you know, every week except one. And I still feel like we're not talking about him enough. Right now, among qualified pitchers, I'll go through the different baseball websites. He is second in ERA at, you know, baseball reference. He is third in FIP at Fangraphs. And he is first among all qualified pitchers in DRA, which is Baseball Prospectus's advanced ERA estimator. Basically, anything measure you look at Chris Paddock is one of the best pitchers in the league I think I didn't pick him to finish as the NL rookie of the year uh before the season because I just wasn't sure about his innings total but forget about rookie of the year like he's a legitimate Cy Young contender Mm -hmm. at this point because of how he's been pitching his last game against the Mets he struck out 11 he pitched seven and two-thirds innings and it was exciting to see him last almost the entire game because San Diego has been so cautious with his pitch totals thus far. He threw 91 pitches last night, and that was his season high. So I think he's still probably going to continue throwing about six innings every game. But you know, in those six innings, or last night he pitched seven and two-thirds, but he can strike out 11. He could not give up any runs. He's, I think, allowing the fewest hits per game of any pitcher in baseball. It's just dominant. The 
way that she there there was a, a slow mo. I think I was watching the Mets broadcast last night. Um, they had a slow mo of the the changeup coming off of his fingertips. At like, I love a good changeup. This might you know might be the the product of uh, watching a lot of young Cole Hamels, but like the well executed changeup is. I don't know if this is a hot take. There are too many sliders in baseball. You know, like everybody throws a fucking slider Throw the, the big Clayton Kershaw hook through the, the change up. I like that, uh, uh, that Paddock can really bring that out. It's just devastating, uh, movement into right-handed batters. And the guy I picked to be the NL rookie of the year, I think you might've too, was Pete Alonzo. Yeah. I think Mets. every, I think, I think everybody who took that survey thought that they were being clever by picking Pete mm-hmm. Alonzo and like five of us picked Pete Alonzo out of six. But last night, Paddock started a rivalry with him and he got the better of his rookie counterpart. I think I saw a stat that the three hardest pitches he threw all night were to Alonzo. So he was clearly getting revved up for that matchup. And, you know, not that this is necessarily going to be a beef going forward because the Padres and Mets just don't play each other enough. But I think that was just an exciting thing. And, you know, seeing him celebrating on the mound afterward and then his counterpart DeGrom is also really fun to watch. So this was, uh, you know, even as I had basketball on in the background, too, this was where my attention was gravitating all night. Yeah, I think I mean, I had the uh, Rockets Warriors game on one screen and and this on another. But like this was. Yeah, it's you. I'm I'm glad that that we didn't completely gloss over Degrom because uh, he's had his ups and downs this season. After I don't I don't know where you'd put the season that he had last year up against like how 2014 Kershaw or uh, 99 2000 Pedro, but like I think it's we need to to consider that it was in that you know in that realm of of you see this season you know, once every ten years, and he's had his ups and downs uh, to start the season, but it's good to see him like completely back on the horse he i don't know i think that was not the most impressive rebound start of mets pitchers lately because we had this Cindergard complete game yeah uh, this- home run game from last week but you know after talking about how the mets starting pitching was disappointing last week they've certainly proved me wrong over the last seven days yeah um one thing you're going to hear a lot about with uh with chris paddock so you mentioned pete alonso um I am a little bit worried. Uh, Matt Winkleman from BP was talking about this on Twitter last week, and he's 100% right. Uh, Pete Alonso is a prospect profile that hardly ever pans out. Like the the three of this college right, right for first baseman with no like defensive flexibility. The three of those guys who have panned out in like the past 15 years are um, Paul Goldschmidt, Reese Hoskins, now Pete Alonso. And I don't know, like, will reserve judgment, I guess, on one good month of Christian Walker. But it's going to skew everything in public prospect analysis. And I'm a little bit worried about that discourse going forward. The other thing I'm worried about is how how long it's going to take me to get sick of hearing um, the uh, the Padres got Chris Paddock for like two months of Fernando Rodney. I mean, sure, you might be sick of hearing that, but it's still kind of wild to just put that in a sentence i mean that's that's great but like paddock so here's why this sort of thing drives me up the wall in the way that um the talk about you remember when michael waka had that good playoff run in 2013 and like there was a spate of columns of like how did michael waka last until when he go like 16th 17th in the draft like he should have been the number one pick and like first of all Michael Waka wasn't this prospect at Texas A&M and two people are are delivering this take 
when Corey Seager and Carlos Correa were in that draft class and got picked ahead of them and or ahead of Waka and were still two years away from the major leagues. So like, let's calm down about the some of this stuff. You know, Paddock wasn't this kind of prospect in, in Miami. And also, if you're afraid of losing every fringy or, you know, mid-rotation uh, A-ball prospect when you're trying to run, you know, Fernando Rodney had an 031 ERA at the time of that trade. Um if you're afraid of making that kind of trade to to go all in, then you know you're going to wind up like I don't know, like the White Sox right now, where you've just got a bunch of prospects and a bunch of them don't pan out. You're going to wind up right back in fourth place where you've been all along. So I am I. This is one of those baseball things that I like as trivia, less than I like it as analysis. If that distinction makes sense. Well, I think there's probably some lol Marlins going on there, like. Similarly, how and I do have immense patience yes. for for Law Marlins. Similarly, so, yeah, they, that's a good point. They traded Luis Castillo, who is also probably a leading NL Cy Young contender now, along with Paddock. They traded him for Dan Straley uh, to the Reds. So I think there's certainly something going on there, and that fits in with like Derek Jeter talking about how he's upset that the Marlins aren't as competitive now when they have the fewest wins in baseball at ten and twenty four. Like I think that's kind of part of it just if it had been another team trading uh paddock maybe there wouldn't be as much that that wouldn't be the discourse as much like the astros gave up on jd martinez but nobody really talks about that i think it's because it's the marlins i'm a little bit not skeptical but like wary of any sort of discourse that takes us to no don't trade your prospects and you know what that's going to get you is some guys who pan out, some guys who don't, and a $60 million payroll. So, like, don't be the pirates, I guess, is the the moral of the story. Because um, there is a, you know, 90, 90% of the time, Chris Paddock doesn't turn out to be Chris Paddock. And that's, I think, part of the reason why this is so exciting is he's a relatively late bloomer. Um, you know, in an age when we see everything coming uh, in terms of prospects, I don't think we saw this coming. No, I mean, he was an eighth round draft pick who before last season, I just knew him basically because of his Tommy John surgery. So Mm -hmm. the fact that he's come this far in basically 12 months is pretty remarkable in and of itself. I really hope they don't shut him down. I mean, if they Strasburg him, I'm going to be so mad. Like, sure, like if if you want to keep him below like 80 pitches a start or have him miss a start or two uh, for rest purposes throughout the season. um, that's fine, but if they're in the race, like, fuck the innings limit, you know? And uh, it feels like this sort of thing where, and, and I don't know what the right answer to this is, but are innings totals the best measure of pitcher's workload? Is it pitch counts? Is it pitcher stress? Because, like, yeah, I'm, you know, well, I'm, I'm, an arm, I'm an armchair analyst, but Paddock, when he's throwing one, two, three innings every inning, like he was last night, I don't think those are as stressful as some other innings he might throw. So I'm not sure how teams are charting and tracking these things, but I would hope it's a little bit more advanced. Yeah, it's one of those things where obviously an innings limit isn't the most precise thing, but we know so little even now about anatomy and and uh, present or um, preventing pitcher injuries that it's almost like a, a through a large enough sample that sort of back of the napkin stuff might just be as good as anything else. Um Obviously, within a start, like not all pitch counts are created equal, like you were saying. But over the course of an entire season, you know, you might as well just pick a number. And if you're going to 
shut a pitcher down for fatigue or, or overwork, like over the course of an entire season, the inning seems as good a, a way to decide that as any, just because, you know, once you drill down deeper into it, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're actually getting pers- more precise or if it just feels like you're getting more precise. That's fair. All right. Uh, the next story is somewhat less joyous uh, news out of Baltimore. The Boston Red Sox, some of them at least, will be going to the White House. Uh, there was a, a list released on on Monday of who was going and who wasn't. And uh, essentially, all the white guys on the team are going and uh, all the black and Hispanic players are not, with the exception of J.D. Martinez. Uh, yikes. I feel like the implication or I feel like the impulse to immediately look at it from an optics perspective is wrong. And we'll talk about that. But my immediate reaction was from the optics perspective that this does not look good from a team perspective, from major league baseball perspective, that it seems so almost needlessly thorny. And the, I mean, the, this divide is so stark that I think that's what inspires that reaction. But, you know, I don't know. People have been wondering, like, what will this mean for the clubhouse? I'm not sure about any of that. I'm not one of those players. I'm not Alex Cora, who is also notably. I will say also, like, I'm sure everybody in that clubhouse knows where everybody else in that clubhouse sits on, on the political spectrum. Like if there's like a white supremacist in that clubhouse, I'm sure this is not news to the Red Sox just because they're going to the, you know, some because all the white guys on the team are going to the Trump White House. But I think one of the reasons this kind of thing resonates is, as we've talked about before, this isn't just uh, this isn't just a one time thing that this kind of conversation about race in clubhouses, race in baseball, uh, players like David Price has talked about this kind of thing before. And I think that's why it's resonating is because it's just the latest in a chain of events as opposed to an anomaly. One other thing I want to add about this is like there's been a line of counter argument when somebody like as far as as I've heard, nobody, none of the players on the White Sox who are skipping the trip have been Red Sox. Um, or, yeah, sorry. Red, yeah, the White Sox aren't going to the, to the White House anytime soon. Sorry. So as as far as I've read, and if I'm wrong about this, then, then correct me. I don't think anybody who's skipping the trip has done anything. I would say like even as political as what Carlos Correa did last year. Um, and Carlos Correa is not like a super politically active athlete, but he said, no, instead of going to the White House, I'm going to um, prepare supplies for hurricane relief in, in Puerto Rico. Um, but there's a, a, a line of counter argument that like, it's not okay to go to the, to the Trump white house, but it's, it wasn't okay. Like it was somehow disrespectful to skip a trip to the, to the Obama white house. Um, you know, the most famous example of this is, uh, when the Boston Bruins won the, the Stanley cup in 2011, uh, their goalie, Tim Thomas didn't go to, to the white house and caught a lot of flack for it. And insofar as like, so there are two issues I have with with that line of argumentation. One is that the idea that all political stances are created equal, you know, all political actions are created equal, that there are some that are or that no matter what it is, like it is the White House, it's the same no matter what that that power means anymore. Um, and the other thing is, I think to a certain extent, we were wrong uh, before that to sort of declare 
the Obama White House or the Bush White House or the Clinton White House or, you know, whatever, as this sort of bastion of apolitical national identity. Like, I, I think we we really didn't appreciate the extent to which this is a political event, you know, back when I'd say back when political circumstances were were a little less frenetic. Um, so I, I I think it's a good thing going forward that, you know, in the event a Democrat ever occupies the White House again, you know, uh, athletes ought to be free to express their political opinions, whatever opinion that may be. And I think the public uh, ought to be trusted to make their own judgments about that athlete based on the political opinions they express. So I don't think that I, I think that the expectation that athletes ought to go to the White House after winning a championship, it might have been naive or if it wasn't naive then then returning that aspect to that expectation would be naive in the future well said all right uh let's go to uh honestly this is my favorite thing that happened in uh in baseball this week baton rouge louisiana da, 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 da. uh this weekend old miss played lsu uh and i am i do not apologize one bit for uh for putting college baseball into this into this podcast, um, Drew Bianco of LSU hit a home run and uh, delivered a tremendous bat flip. And uh, this is funny because his dad is the head coach at Ole Miss, very successful uh, coach, produced a lot of big league players, uh, been to the College World Series. Um, Drew decided to go to LSU, homered on his dad's team on his dad's birthday, and uh, and flipped the bat and, and ran around the bases. Uh, I'll uh, send out the. Um, the SEC Network video clip because uh, there's a great shot as he's rounding at third base where Mike Bianco, the uh, uh, the Ole Miss head coach, is just staring daggers at his son. This is this is uh, incre- incredible content. So as someone who is not nearly the college baseball follower that you are, I must ask, why didn't he attend Ole Miss? This I don't know, but I, I don't think it's that wild a uh, uh, thing to do. I think that that there might be an unreasonable expectation that um that sons or or you know daughters will want to to play for their parents if their parents are coaches. I think that honestly I I think it's healthy a lot of the time to separate that that relationship because we've seen you know so many times that sometimes playing for your dad works out great but other times you know um complicating that parent coach relationship is is not healthy for anybody involved. So I don't know if that's what's at work here or if he just liked Baton Rouge better, but you know, I don't, this is another thing. Maybe we expect too much that, that uh, athletes will want to go play for uh, their parents when given the opportunity. So honestly, it's better for everybody because if you play for your dad, you can't bat flip on him. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time that I beat my father in a sporting contest. It was just a one-on-one game of basketball in the backyard. And I like still remember the shot I made to beat him the first time. So I can only, you know, hope to imagine what was going through uh, this player's mind. I was just looking up his stats. He is hitting 186 this year. He's only hit three home runs. This was his only at bat of that game. So all the, you know, all the forces came together to create this moment of kismet. And I think like the dagger eyes that you were talking about, just staring at him as, as he rounds third base was such a cool moment. I you know wanted to just freeze frame that and leave it up for a while because so much emotion came across in that moment. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And, you know, there's there's a lot of emotion in college baseball. This is just a, 
the latest instance. Uh, we will talk about that more as the season goes to comes to a close in the next couple of weeks and we get into the NCAA tournament. And uh, we'll talk about more news as it, it comes available. But uh, go Wikipedia Peter Jennings and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Until then. Let's get something straight. Your teeth. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less than braces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Simply go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. Then they'll email a preview of your new smile and once you get your aligners, one of Smile Direct Club's duly licensed doctors will check in on your progress every 90 days. Visit SmileDirectClub.com for real before and after photos from some of the 550,000 plus satisfied grinners. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's $100 off at SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. All right, my next guest, uh, you might know him from his work at Baseball Prospectus. You might know him from his uh, tenure as mayor of Minneapolis and uh, his twins podcast, Gleeman and the Geek. It is Aaron Gleeman. Thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me. The twins are good. And I think we ought to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so, I agree. So the first thing I want to uh, ask is the, probably the single most confusing thing about this twin season to me so far. Um I saw a lot of Martin Perez when he was in Texas and uh, he was awful (laughs) and, and he's good now. And this is, you don't think of Minnesota as a a place where pitchers go uh, to, you know, this is not, you know, going to the Mets or or going to the Astros where you discover four miles an hour on the, on your fastball and, and suddenly develop a, a great, you know, breaking ball. What, who, who is this guy? Well, you're, I mean, you're right. The Twins have a well-earned rep for probably doing the opposite of what the Astros have done, which is basically no one progressed under them pitching-wise for like a decade. But they're hoping that the new regime uh, in the front office brought in new coaching staff, including Wes Johnson, who's a pitching coach from the college ranks that I'm sure you know a lot more than me even about. But uh, the hope with Perez was basically we can get him throwing – we can clean his mechanics up a little bit and get him throwing two or three miles an hour faster with his four-seam fastball, which they've done. But the, the crazy thing that I don't even think they expected necessarily was that he's completely ditched his slider and he's throwing like 35 or 40% cut fastballs, which he's literally never thrown before this season. And I, I looked this morning just to update the stats and uh, batters are hitting 100 uh, against his cut fastball. So he's basically gone from never throwing a pitch to throwing a Mariano Rivera uh, caliber cut fastball, which explains uh, you know, how he went from, like you said, being terrible in Texas. People should definitely not go read uh, my transaction analysis of the Twins signing Martin Perez because uh, I, uh, I was 180 degrees off what the results have been so far. Well, I don't think that's a that's an unreasonable place to come from. Cause we had like a ton of track record and he was one of a bunch of um, pitching prospects. The Rangers brought up around the same time thinking, you know, maybe this is our new mid rotation, you know, our new three, four and five stars. He like, he didn't strike anybody out. Um, I'm, I'm shocked. This is uh, shocking. is not a uh, too strong a word for, for what he's done this season. 
And the the interesting, like Thad Levine, who's now the Twins GM, was the assistant GM in Texas when they initially acquired Martin Perez as a whatever a teenager. And he, I mean, he was. I remember going back through the the baseball prospectus archives. Like he was a top fifty for sure. He might have been a top twenty prospect at least one year. But yeah, you're right. There's no there. Like he was a serviceable back of the rotation guy in a couple of those seasons. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing about his track record in terms of you know, missed bats or strikeout rate or even like ground ball rate that would, that would scream. This is a late twenties breakout candidate, but basically he added a completely new pitch. And now all of a sudden he's amazing. Now I'm sort of skeptical, uh, I guess, cause we're only like four starts into it. Cause he, he actually began the year in the bullpen cause he was their fifth starter and they had a million days off. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a huge boost to the team because the, the lineup is better than people expected but people expected the lineup to be pretty good but everyone was was very uh you know skeptical of the of the rotation and the bullpen being anything but but mediocre yeah you mentioned Wes Johnson's college experience he comes from Arkansas and before that Mississippi State and Dallas Baptist and like Dallas Baptist is probably the mid-major pitching powerhouse uh I the the last thing I wrote for uh for D1 baseball before I joined the ringer when I was covering college baseball was about Dallas Baptist using, um, using TrackMan to, to improve their yeah. pitchers and like everybody that they, that they produce. And not many of those guys have really translated to, to the pro ranks, but they're just all giant guys who throw hard and, you know, they, uh, they know what they're doing down there. So if this is, this is a, you know, for real, it would be a heck of a, a great developmental prospect for, or, you know, developmental story right off the bat for him with the twins. Yeah. And it's like, I've loved every quote I've seen from him, obviously, cause I'm a, I'm a nerd and I like the idea of combining tech and analytics and sort of new school thinking. But I also thought a lot of the, the quotes from the actual pitchers, like day one of spring training, uh, you know, they had, they had the track man and the, every, basically every possible device you could have. Uh, out on the field, and I think it was Taylor Rogers, who's now the Twins' best pitcher, basically, who was like, "Oh, this is this is going to be a lot different." Uh, and so far, the results have been great. And you know, he definitely talks a good game. And like you just said, like the the results from coming up in the college ranks have been there. And it's it's kind of fascinating to me. Like in every other sport, if you do extremely well in college, especially if you're you're someone who innovates in college, you get all kinds of interest from the pros. And yet he was, I think, the first pitching coach to be to go right from college to the majors. Yeah. Which at the time it was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And now he's like six weeks into the job. And it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you try to hire the best college pitching coaches to be the the major league pitching coaches? Yeah. It's uh I mean, we've seen some guys like uh Derek Johnson um uh went from the the college ranks to like a pro front office, like minor league. Uh, coaching role, I think, and then later became the right. Um, later became the the pitching coach in Milwaukee. Um, so I I just wonder if some of that is the the developmental pipeline doesn't matter as much in college as it does in or sorry in a in college baseball as it does in college football or basketball. Um, like the the game is really different too, and the the coaching atmosphere is it's uh it's very different from because um, the the head coach is like the president of baseball operations essentially, right? Um, so it's a uh, we're different jobs, but I think we're going to see that pipeline open up. Frankly, as a lot of colleges get smarter, I think that's going to be a big you know you've seen the resources that that DBU or Vanderbilt or Florida uh, puts into pitcher development. Um, 
you know, we'll see, I think we'll, we'll see more major league teams sort of dip into that pool. Um, so that's a, a we just had a, a college baseball tangent in the, the end of the, the last segment. So uh, let's go back to the pros. <laughs> um, one thing that is of immense importance, not only to, to our resident twins fan, Meg Schuster, uh, but I've been burned by Byron Buxton. It seems like every year for the past 15 years, uh, and he is hitting well at the start of the season. How much of that is real? Well, let me just tell you that I am uh, known locally, possibly nationally, as a Byron Buxton Bobo. And every year I say, this is going to be the year it happens. And then every year it doesn't. So, of course, I'm going to say this is somewhat for real and it's going to happen. And then maybe three months from now, you can just add it to the list of seasons I've been wrong about Byron Buxton. But it's going to I mean, you write that column every year and sooner or later, it's going to it's going to turn out to be right. Or Just he announces his retirement and I print out all the columns and I just have some sort of ceremonial burning of them Mm -hmm. uh, in my backyard or something. But there there are changes in his approach. Uh, that's been true to an extent in past years too. Uh, but he is, there's a lot less sort of movement mechanically in his swing. And the, some of the stuff that we just talked about on the pitching side, where the twins are really trying to get away from kind of what was known as the twins way for, for a long time, initially in the minors and in the majors, when he was first up, it was hit the ball on the ground and run. Uh, you got to work on your bunting. You got to go the other way. All the stuff people have heard and read about the Twins uh, over the last 30 years. And now the, they're basically saying just because you're fast doesn't mean that you have to be a guy who is all on base percentage and no slugging. And they're also encouraging him. And basically, the whole lineup has taken this approach. But Byron Buxton, especially, is he struggles when he's behind in the count because he's not great, I don't think, at recognizing. Uh, the difference between sliders and fastballs, and he chases a lot outside the zone. So they've basically said to him, if someone throws you a, a good fastball early, take a rip at it. And you know his first and second pitch of plate appearances uh, swing rate is you know skyrocketed from past years. And I'm sure pitchers will make an adjustment to that. But you know he's already had he's like right up there close to his career high in doubles already. Uh, you know, all the exit velocity rates are, are really good for him. Like he's just hitting the ball very hard. Uh, I, I still, I think I'm past the point where I dream of him being sort of a prototypical leadoff guy getting on base and, and stealing 60 bases. He, to me, is more of maybe like a Adam Jones type of approach where if you hit 285 with 30 homers, nobody really cares if you draw 30 walks or 60 walks. Uh, and then obviously the the defense has been remained spectacular and he's not like uh, Billy Hamilton esque on the bases because he sort of picks his spots uh, a lot more. But I think as of now, he has the best stolen base percentage in the history of baseball. He's one of those guys, obviously he's one of probably like the five or six fastest players in baseball, but he's, he's always had like a good, I don't know. You, you think it, Chase Utley held that record for for a long time, yeah. like just a really good ab- ability to to sense his moment. You see that on defense too. Like that, you know, Bill James would write about how like intelligence shows up all over the field. Yeah, and I think I mean people want Buxton, especially now that he's actually getting on base a decent amount uh, for his relative to his old track record. At least people are like, well, I want to see him steal seventy bases, and I he's capable. But given his uh, injury history. And mm-hmm. just his physical, uh, you know, build and also just where we are in terms of how much a stolen base is valued relative to a home run, relative to an out. 
I would I'm, I would much rather he goes like 30 out of 33 every year yeah. as opposed to trying to steal 75 bases. And it's why Trout stole like 49 bases that one year, and he's never going to do that again. Right. Just it's not worth the, the physical toll. Um, something you said about Buxton, you know, tell him to to hit the ball on the on the ground because he's fast, and then everything that goes after that. Is it useful to you as a, a Twins writer to just be able to recycle the whole Carlos Gomez uh, <laughs> You know, spiel because that's exactly what happened to him. Yes, it is. It has been interesting to because I, I started writing about the twins in in two thousand two, uh, and that was right at the beginning of their good stretch uh, under the Terry Ryan regime. And I continued to write about them through their horrible stretch in the Terry Ryan regime. And it, it's been a real shock to the system to have not only a new regime come in, but the new regime from the from the top down is is completely different from the old one and so you have to kind of throw out all your notions of what type of players they would try to acquire what type of coaching good or bad they would give to players like Carlos Gomez or or Byron Buxton and you sort of it's been I've had to make an effort to kind of take what they say at face value and believe in it because I'm so conditioned to just assume that you know they could talk a good game with Byron Buxton, but ultimately behind the scenes they're telling him you know try to hit a ground ball to to second base and beat it out. And so now you know they're they're telling him basically line one into the left field corner and sprint to second base. Uh, and it's it's definitely I'm sure it's been a huge adjustment for the players. It's been a uh, a pretty big adjustment for the for the bloggers and podcasters too. So one thing that the Twins did this offseason that I liked was I feel like they did pretty well in that middle class of of neglected free agents. Like they ended up with Marwin Gonzalez. I got Nelson Cruz, who's just going to hit 40 home runs every year until he's 50, apparently. Um, they got Jonathan Scope. And but at the same time, like that, that ba- and on top of their core of like Kepler and Barrios and Buxton, um, made them look like the most likely challenger to an Indians team that we've talked about this on the pod all the time. They just didn't look like they wanted to spend enough to contend, but it felt like the twins were still a Dallas Keuchel away. Or if they had gotten in on uh, somebody like Michael Brantley or Andrew McCutcheon um, earlier in the off season, maybe the, the positional fit isn't the best for this, but you know what I mean? Like one bat and one, one arm away. And now Cleveland is just, completely falling apart. You know, Corey Kluber's hurt. Ramirez has been, been bad. Clevenger's hurt. Um, Lindor's just coming back and the twins have taken full advantage. So like, do you still feel, and you've been critical of of the team's unwillingness to, to spend in the, in the past, do you still feel like, uh, them not going farther this off season is, is, uh, something they're going to end up regretting? Yeah. I I mean, I think so. I think especially, I I agree with what you said on the hitting side. I thought they did a great job and we're seeing the lineups been great so far. I just thought whether it was one more starter or especially in the bullpen, they really did, did nothing. They signed Martin Perez, which has worked out brilliantly. They deserve all kinds of credit (laughs) for that, but their only bullpen addition was Blake Parker, who's been okay so far, but I felt there was an opportunity there. Uh, And they're, they're like 12 million below last year's opening day payroll. So they had, they had plenty of money to spend. One of the the talking points that they kept trying to put forward when people like me were, were critical of them this off season on the pitching side was, you know, we're not sure if the, the window to win is, is quite open yet. Cause they only won 78 games last year. Uh, it's open now. I mean, yeah, you're, you're leading the division. Like you just said that the Indians look extremely vulnerable. Uh, I would probably, even though I'm I'm known for not being the most optimistic uh, Twins fan, I think I would probably bet on the Twins at this point to win the division. It's probably a coin flip at the worst 
for the Twins. So I guess my hope is that the stuff they said all offseason – uh, about the lack of spending on pitching and the window being open. I think at this point, the window's open. So I would love to see him. I don't think it's going to be Dallas Keuchel or, or Craig Kimbrell, but I'd love to see him be somewhat aggressive uh, as we come up you know, to mid-season. Yeah, that just that doesn't really scan to me because the the bottom three teams in that division are so bad right now. And they, you know, they didn't, they won 75 games last year, but they made the playoffs a year before that. And they have essentially the same roster. Um yeah, if not now, then when? Uh, so you mentioned the bullpen. The bullpen's been pretty good, like slightly above average in terms of of ERA and and win probability added. Um, at, but not a lot of names that you'd recognize. And sort of true to Twins form, uh, not a whole lot of uh, strikeouts. Probably the guy in that bullpen I'm most familiar with is uh, uh, Trevor May, who I remember from his time as a Phillies minor leaguer and um, and part time DJ. Um, who went over there, I think, was it long enough? Was that the Ben Revere trade? Yes. That's how, the, how long it, ago it was? It was the Ben um, Revere trade, yeah. So what? you still don't seem 100% sold on on some of the guys at the back of this bullpen. I'm not. I mean, it's I, th- I like Trevor May as a, as a setup guy. Uh, Taylor Rogers has been brilliant basically since the middle of last year, which is another thing I certainly did not see coming. I think we're learning on this, on this episode that there were a lot of things I did not see coming, uh, with the twins. Uh, me neither. That's why I asked you, but that's true. Uh, but, but I, I do think like if they were to add one, it doesn't have to be even a closer for whatever that means at this point, but just sort of one proven high leverage late inning power arm. And you could push everyone else down one one role on the pecking order. I think their depth mm-hmm. is okay. I just feel like they don't have more than two or three guys that you want to count on uh, with you know seventh, eighth, and ninth inning in a, in a game you have the lead. And we've already seen already Rocco Baldelli has leaned on Taylor Rogers, Trevor Hildenberger, Trevor May, and to the point that they've gotten overworked to an extent, and then he's had to to go away from them for two or three games in a row. And then you start to get into the second and third tier of the bullpen and they struggle a little bit, but you know, I, I think it's, it's a decent bullpen as long as Taylor Rogers continues to be one of the best lefties uh, in baseball. But yeah, I think, uh, I think they missed an opportunity to not add one bigger piece to the bullpen in the off season. I think that should certainly be the the priority still. Yeah. And so obviously right now that probably means a trade. I'm looking at, at their, um, uh their top prospect list from from Fangraphs from this past offseason. The guys in uh, in AAA are guys I know pretty well from college ball, like Brent Rooker and Lamont Wade. But uh, I don't I don't know if there's like an impact bat or an impact arm that's that's going to come up this season. Um, so, you know, does that mean that that some of these prospects are do, do they have the farm system to swing a trade for that kind of arm that you're talking about? They, I mean, their farm system is, is I think, top five, or we, BP had them at least top five. But most, like you said, most of their guys, you know, the Royce Lewises and Alex Kirilov and, and Gratterall on the pitching side are all below, double A or lower. Uh, the one guy, but they, I mean, but they could trade. They have the prospect firepower to go get basically anybody in trade. Uh, in terms of, like, call-ups for the pitching staff, the one guy that they've already called up a couple times is Fernando Romero who's technically not a prospect, but was a top yeah. 100 prospect in years past as a starting pitcher. And they have shifted him full-time to the bullpen, basically hoping, you know, a 95 mile an hour fastball becomes a 98 mile an hour fastball and he can just throw his slider 
as opposed to messing around with a changeup too. And the results have kind of been a mixed bag. He was set up yeah, to win. He's, a, he's been really good at times over the past year or two. Yeah. I mean, from a stuff perspective, if you say to him, just throw your fastball and your slider, it's hard to envision him not being a good reliever at some point. Uh, but he was basically the path was clear for him to have an opening day bullpen spot. And he kind of pitched his way out of it. Um, but he's, he's getting a chance sort of in a mop-up role. So I think that is, if not a trade, that's the one guy they're counting on uh, in the in terms of in-house guys who by mid-season can maybe be a, a late-inning reliever. One last thing before you go. How was your Dario Saroch Robert Covington experience? Well, it was good until, you know, Covington decided to get hurt for the, the whole second half of the season, basically. But yeah, I, I, uh, everything that, that Philadelphians told me about Robert Covington uh, that I was going to love him was 100% true. I immediately fell in love and it lasted about two weeks until he went on the injured list. Uh, and now the wolves are back to blowing the whole thing up again and, and hopefully building around Covington and towns. And I just, every time, you know, the, the Sixers lose and Jimmy Butler has a bad game. I get sort of happy about that, but it, he seems to be having pretty good games here so I, far. I was skeptical, but he's been big the yeah. the past couple games. Yeah, that, that's the that's the killer from a from a Minnesotan's point of view is that I want to dislike him and I want to talk poorly about him uh, as a person and as a player just for how things went. But he's really he's really good, and that makes it uh, hurt all the more. I think. All right, uh, Aaron Gleeman. You can find him at Baseball Prospectus uh, at Gleeman in. Gleeman and the Geek on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, no, go uh, go subscribe to Baseball Prospectus. It'll do. Uh, you'll like it, and it'll be good for me too. All right, go go subscribe to BP. Uh, Aaron, thanks for so much for coming on. Anytime. For the last segment, uh, as always, I am joined by my good friend and colleague and fellow Thanos enthusiast Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. We're going to talk about the Cincinnati Reds today. Yeah, uh, how about that? This is, this is a team that I was really high on, that Bobby was high on uh, coming into the season. I loved just from a, like, I wanted more teams to do what they were doing. Just, mm-hmm. you know, we've got some talented players and let's just spend a little bit of money and trade a couple, you know, second tier prospects and take a free shot at this. And despite playing in a you know in a really tough division that's what they did they brought in Yasiel Puig and and Alex Wood um they brought in Tanner Roark and uh it hasn't worked out well sort of they're they're the only team in the division or in the uh the National League Central as we record with a losing record uh but it's a little bit more complicated than that because uh, yes. you look at their run differential they're 23 runs above the break even point uh some of this is due to the, or some of that discrepancy is due to the struggles of Bryce L. Iglesias, who, much to the peril of my fantasy team, uh, has the second worst win probability added of any relief pitcher <laughs> in baseball. Uh, the only one out of nine, 194 qualified relievers who has a worst WPA is Fernando Rodney, who's having a big episode today. Um, what gives? Yeah, it's tough. I, I was not high on them in the sense that I didn't expect them to be particularly good, but I was also high on them in the sense that I enjoyed their attempt to be. And I thought they had one of the most entertaining winters of any team. And they were clearly trying to be more competitive and more entertaining. And I thought they did it in a way that didn't really jeopardize any long-term success that they might have. They didn't trade away any top prospects. They mostly just picked up some rentals. So 
I liked it in principle, but I thought they probably didn't get there. You know, a lot would have had to break right for them to contend in a very tight division, but they've actually played pretty well. And so I, I feel for them because they've made the effort and in some senses they've been rewarded. As you note, they have a good run differential. Only the Cubs and the Cardinals have a higher run differential in this division. And if you go by base runs record, which is another way of looking at a team's underlying performance, only the Cubs have beaten theirs in this division. So as you note, there have been some Iglesias issues. There's been some bad timing and some bad luck. And obviously some of the moves they made have not worked out particularly well. I mean, Matt Kemp is yeah, already just DFA'd Matt Kemp. <laughs> an um. ex-red. Yeah, Alex Wood has yet to pitch for the team. He's been sidelined by back issues. And Yasiel Puig has, on the field at least, not taken well to Cincinnati so far. So the outfield has kind of been a disaster to this point. And Kemp is gone, and Puig has been really one of the team's worst hitters and least productive players. And Scott Shebler has now been sent to AAA and Nick Senzel is here. The top prospect and center fielder has arrived. So I think that should help, but it's a a better Reds team, I think fundamentally than we've seen in a while. And it's a different Reds team because we're used to the Reds having terrible pitching and pretty good position players. And that's just been flipped on its head this year. So the Reds actually lead the major leagues in war, at least uh, pitching war that is at fan graphs, which is kind of incredible because in the past three seasons, they've gone worst in the majors and actually one of the worst of all time in 2016 to second worst in the majors to fifth worst in the majors pitching wise. And now they have the best pitching in the majors thus far this year, which is, you know, partly Roark and partly Sonny Gray and then partly holdovers like Luis Castillo, who's been fantastic. Yeah, uh, Amir Garrett, Michael Lorenzen, former uh, podcast guest who played yes. a little bit of outfield on Monday. Um, he we might talk be about one of their happened. best outfielders at this yeah, point. Yeah, but- we, we should talk about what happened on Monday um, because there was a – you want to talk about how snake bit this team is. There was actually a plague of locusts might have been better because yeah. they had a plague of bees. Uh, if you want the – the the comprehensive history of the B game, you should read C. Trent Rosecrans' uh, hilarious write-up of it in The Athletic. Apparently, there were two amateur beekeepers at Great American Ballpark. <laughs> I love which that. Is just, <laughs> it's like, this is your moment, guys. This is what you've been Man, waiting for. You've been just like, waiting for someone to like, page, is there a beekeeper in the house? And, is there, and there you are. <laughs> it's like, it's beyond... Um, like Courtney Cox getting pulled up on stage in the in the Dancing in the Dark video. This is like, this is, you know, Ted Stryker. Is there a pilot on board the? Plane? Yeah. I don't want to panic anybody, but is there a pilot on board the plane? Um, not one, but two amateur beekeepers. I'm wondering. So, did you <laughs> what see are the, the odds? How many amateur beekeepers are out there, and how many are typically at, at baseball games? I don't know. I don't know. Last week, I watched the new Noah Centineo uh, Netflix rom-com, The Perfect uh-huh. Date. Have you seen this? No, not yet. Oh, uh, you should. It's it's cute. Um, but there's a, a bit in it, like an extended gag about amateur beekeeping is a hobby. And I'm <laughs> uh-huh. wondering, are we just surrounded by amateur beekeepers who, like, is one in 10 Americans secretly <laughs> making their own honey in, in the backyard? Maybe so. so. Uh, if, Maybe if, it's time for a trend piece at the ring. I don't know. Tell yours. Sure. Wow. <laughs> be the change you want to see yeah uh, well <laughs> that was i'm terrified of bees i can't write the like this is like okay. my my two irrational phobias are heights and bees so i i don't know if i could write this you should um, confront your fears and become an or if i should i should tell the video team or if i do i, I should tell the video team about it so they can <laughs> turn it into content yeah um 
uh, Derek Dietrich is apparently taking uh, an interest in in beekeeping. He uh, stole Nick Senzel's uh, white shirt and dressed up like a beekeeper. This on the heels of uh, they the the Reds wore 1911 throwbacks, gorgeous like dark blue and red uniforms on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dietrich drew a uh, Groucho Marx mustache in eye black uh, on his own face. This is a man who right now. He's hitting 257, 361, 686 after making the team as a non-roster invite. Uh, he is uh, he is living his best life. Yeah. He also unbuttoned literally half of the buttons on his 1911 throwback, which I really enjoyed. It was a good so, look. So here's the thing about Derek Dietrich is Derek <laughs> Dietrich is like too muscular yeah. for a major league baseball player. Like you spent <laughs> a fair amount of time in clubhouses. You know that all these guys are in good shape, but like they don't look like – well, Derek Dietrich is like Derek Dietrich has beach muscles, uh-huh. you know, and uh, I want he's a he's a good hitter, but he's a little stiff defensively. He's one of those guys that like, you know, are you going for Mr. Or, uh, what's the Mr. Olympus? Is that the big bodybuilding competition? Olympia. Um, Olympia. I don't know uh, if you're a bodybuilder or a beekeeper, please write to us at uh, at Ben Lindbergh on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Derek Dietrich has nine home runs right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's been one of the bright spots on this offensive team for some reason. I would not have expected that, but well, he's I, always hit like that's yeah. not, that's not wild. He's a useful, I don't want it. You know, I don't, I think if, if he's like your everyday uh, third baseman or something, it's probably, I mean, you look at what happened to the Marlins the past few years, but he's absolutely useful bench guy. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten a lot out of Jesse Winker, who has hit for power this year. I mean, the the big concern, really, one of the big concerns has been Joey Votto, who is just looking old these days. And it would be a real shame if Joey Votto tailed off right at the point where the rest of the Reds got good because he's he's suffered through the lean years here. So I'd like to see him hang on and, and win again. And of course, he's been a guy we've all expected yeah. to age well, just because he's, he's- been on the team so long he was yeah. on the reds when they were good <laughs> i know right so he could span this this whole era but yeah he's not looking good he's uh his plate discipline seems to have eroded a little bit his power has really evaporated and I'm not giving up on the guy i i've expected him to age well because of just how he approaches everything so analytically and how well he had aged up until last year really but it's not looking great right now. Pitchers are throwing him a ton of fastballs, more fastballs than he's ever seen in his career, which maybe leads you to believe that they think his bat is slowing a bit. Yeah. But if there's any way to compensate for declining skills, I'm sure Joey Votto will find it. But he is not to this point. You know, obviously, some guys who've been bad will be better. <laughs> the roster spot that was formerly occupied by Matt Kemp will probably be more productive going forward. Yasiel Puig will hit at some point. And I want to also shout out Tucker Barnhart, who has not hit, but he has evidently learned to frame, which I think Mm. is part of what appears to be the Reds' pitching success. They've actually allowed the fewest runs per game of any team other than the Rays, Zach Cram's beloved Rays. So the Reds have been great at run prevention, and that is partly the pitching, but it's also the fact that they are now in the black in framing for the first time since the Ryan Hannigan era since 2012. So I always liked Ryan Hannigan. I did too. Yeah. Barnhart's been a a gold glover at catcher in the past few years, but I didn't think he particularly deserved it at the time because he was not very good at probably the most important part of catcher defense, but now seemingly he is. So I think 
that's a, a good turnaround too. But I don't want to cut short. Tyler your- Flowers, Tyler Flowers, don't read this. Tucker Barnhart, I know. hello. I know exactly, but I don't want to cut short your uniform discussion because I, I do want to say that I like those 1911 uniforms. They were wow. wearing they were wearing the so first of all the Reds are doing this thing where they're celebrating the 150th anniversary of of the 1869 Red Stockings, which technically was a different franchise. So they're just kind of claiming it as their own, but that's okay. They're they're using it to do this year long celebration, and and they're doing 15 throwback jerseys, and so. The first one they did was the 1902 home jerseys. Mm-hmm. Not a big fan of those because they have a front pocket. I thought they pocket. looked okay. I, uh, front they, pocket. They the, like the big collar. And, yeah, yeah thought, well, I'm not a big fan of, right. of front pockets or collars. I, I never know mm. what to do with a front pocket. I've never put anything in a shirt front pocket, and I definitely don't know what you do with it on a baseball field. So that was, uh, I don't know, not my favorite fit, I guess. But the the 1911 road jerseys, I do like the solid uniform top and bottom and kind of an unorthodox color. Everyone loves the, like the powder blue and I do too, but this was a a solid dark blue. It's just a different look, but I thought they wore it well. We've seen, I mean, this is not something that's completely new to baseball. We saw this all throughout the, the 70s and 80s, the solid color. You think about the... Uh, the Phillies had maroon, uh, all maroon uniforms for a little bit. The Cleveland Indians went all red. Um, the Pirates were head to toe yellow and head to toe black at the same time. They were like the Oregon football team of of the late 1970s. And we're seeing college teams get back to this. Um, the Vanderbilt has this all black with white pinstripes uh, uniform setup that I hate. It makes them look like gangster pajamas. Um, but like we're seeing the the sort of head to toe dark color uh, pick up a little bit in the lower ranks of baseball. I would like to see big league teams experiment with that because I don't, I don't know what it was about these 1911 uniforms that that I liked so much. Might have just been like I like that color of blue, mm-hmm. which makes them sort of a weird choice for a Cincinnati Reds uniform. Uh, but I, I would like to see teams get back to this because like the the white versus color or white versus gray. Like we don't need that much differentiation in color uh, with modern high def TVs the same way you would with like a black and white, you know, 13 mm. inch screen that you might be watching, might have been watching on in in 1967. Um, so we've seen other, you know, uh, basketball has loosened up its uh, uniform restrictions a little bit. We've seen the NFL play around with it. I would like to see major league teams get a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more creative. Take some risks. Yep. I liked it too. Yeah. Nice red belt, red, red piping on the uniform yeah. top. So I, I liked it. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad. That the, means a lot coming from you because you, you have consistently <laughs> have begged out of uniform, uniform opinions. discussions before. No, it's true. I, I care more about the people inside the uniforms than, uh, than the uniforms. <laughs> but Come on. <laughs> but the Reds have to take what they could get because the, the team inside the uniforms has not fared so well. And, and right now their their playoff odds are down to about 5%. 5%. Yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't start out particularly high because of this division and because of the team, but they've lost most of whatever chance they had just because of this slow start and, and being down six games in the division already to an incredibly hot Cubs team. So I think, you know, they've they've had some poor luck and, and we should all celebrate what they tried to do and what they have done on the field because, again, they have played well at a pretty fundamental level and they just haven't been rewarded for it. That is one thing that I wanted to uh, come back to right before we before we end, because uh, I I think the the five percent like I don't know that 
I guess that is like a, a an accurate depiction of of what their their playoff odds are like. But this early in the season, that could change. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know they've played, they started one and eight, which means that they're uh, uh, fourteen and twelve over their last um, twenty six games, which is pretty good. Like you know, it's not going to uh, make up ground on the Cubs, who haven't lost since like last August. Right. Um, but. So they've still got an uphill climb, but even with as hot as the Cubs are, they're only six games out. And I know they've got, you know, X number of teams to climb even for the, the wild card. And, you know, they're not they're. I just, I don't think they're out of it yet. I think that this, this is a team that still has some room to, to improve. Um, and the record, you know, like we've, we've talked about, it's really belied how well they've played. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether the pitching will continue to be quite as good as it's been. I mean, hopefully they get Wood back at some point, but they've been maybe the best pitching team in baseball. And that is a, a large leap if you've been as terrible as the Reds have been on that side of the ball in the last few years. So not sure they can keep that up. But if that comes back to earth a bit, I think the bats will pick up and Senzel should help and just Puig hitting like Puig should help. So I do think there are some brighter days ahead, perhaps at least in terms of results. I will say we, uh, I think we've both been looking at the Fangraphs playoff odds mm-hmm. and misreading the NL Central standings as a result because the Cubs are at the top of the playoff odds, uh, but they're actually still a half game behind the Cardinals. So uh-huh. despite that winning streak, before we get letters, <laughs> uh, we actually do know who's in first place. Yes. Um, so yeah, I still like this team. I still think that that they're a lot of fun. I'm not, I'm not giving up hope. And really like when I said I was high on them coming into the season, I thought that they were going to be about a 500 team that had upside for, for more and 500 is, you know, it's, it's more than in play. It's, it's completely within their, their reach. They could win 80, you know, even 82, 84 games. Right. And it's kind of weird. I don't know how to classify them in the rebuild spectrum. Like they're not really one of these teams that you feel like is on the verge of a a breakout. Like they're not the Padres who are coming out of a, a bad period, but you feel like they're just about to go on a real run. I don't know whether you have the same confidence about the Reds because they don't have no. the the depth of young talent that the Padres do, but they do have some, and I think they're well, like the entire National League doesn't have the depth of, <laughs> right. of young talent that the Padres do. So yeah. maybe that's yeah, you know, that's not the the best comparison. Yeah. But I know what you mean. It hasn't been like the typical tear down rebuild. Like yeah. they haven't had a very clear plan. They never so tanked. That, They've just been right. bad. Yeah. So we can't say okay, the the plan was twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, and they're almost there. Like. It doesn't really work like that with the Reds, which I guess is is a negative perhaps at this point that you can't point to the year when it's all kind of going to come together and and project the lineup two years in the future and, and imagine it being overpowering. But they do have young players who are coming up now and are promising. And so I think the worst is behind them. And that's another reason I liked what they did this offseason. Mm-hmm. Because like, it's not going to screw up anything for 2020 because their outlook for 2020 didn't look that great. I mean, you know, Scooter Jeanette, who maybe this is a bad example now, but like he was going to be a, a free agent after the season. They held on to him. So, you know, why not take a shot? Right. I I support, you know, just try and see how it goes instead of, you know, sell payroll flexibility indefinitely. So Agreed. I, I still have maybe not faith, but hope that the Reds will be rewarded for what they did this offseason. OK, I'm with you. All right, so uh, we will uh, check in with a, a similarly, I don't know, we've talked about bees and uniforms. Maybe we'll find something <laughs> a little more baseball related to talk about. I mean, we're coming off after. an Avengers discussion, so we're, we're getting true. closer. I think that, I think honestly, I think that's some of the best radio you and I have done in, <laughs> uh, 
in like years. So <laughs> maybe we uh, should pivot to comic book movies full time. Oh, Spider-Man's coming out before too long, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. all right. Uh, so we will be on the lookout for baseball and film and other stories from last place teams from flyover country. But until then, uh, thanks for joining me, Ben. Talk to you soon. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me. And a special thanks to Aaron Gleeman. Uh, my guest today, please follow him on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman. Uh, thanks to Bobby for producing today's episode. Thanks to Drew Bianco, Byron Buxton, and Derek Dietrich for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Support for today's show comes from Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less embraces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's smiledirectclub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100.